You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. There's a movie called Splice coming out soon, which deals with a new life form being created by splicing human and animal DNA. The film Species dealt with a similar idea, only it was alien DNA being spliced with human DNA. And the 1970s film Prophecy dealt with pollution causing birth defects, creating a monstrous bear. It's not new ground in that in the movies, as in real life, genetic modifications often have monstrous results. But what is a monster? And what if your job is to make them? Not in the fictional sense, but in real life. What are the ethical boundaries of science, and what constitutes a monster? On this episode of Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and this is Monster Talk, sponsored by Skeptic Magazine. Today, my co-hosts, Ben Radford, Managing Editor of Skeptical Inquirer, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, blogger and host of Point of Inquiry, interview Dr. Marcus Davis, a biologist at Kennesaw State University. Dr. Davis participated in the famous Neil Shubin Tiktaalik dig, and he performs genetic and embryological research in his work on comparative anatomy. As he puts it, Making monsters is part of his job. His interview is chock full of good information, so we're just going to hop right in. Monster Talk. Okay, so I Ben, Karen, and Blake. Is that correct? Is That's that, correct. Yes. Hi. Hello. And we have you, Dr. Marcus Davis. That's right. So you are an evolutionary biologist, and you teach at Kennesaw State University. That is correct. When people ask, I tell them I'm an evolutionary biologist first, and then after that I say that what I'm really interested in is the evolution of development and how the developmental program for building organisms has itself evolved over time. So, so the development of development? That's very really meta. The, the evolu- <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's too meta, the evolution of development. But yeah, the development of yeah, the. I could also say the evolution of evolution in a way, too. That's even more meta. Cool. (laughs) But yeah, in a way, the development of development over time, how that program has changed, or in some cases not changed, because sometimes it's very conservative. I focused on the vertebrate skeleton, and so most of my research has been on the vertebrate skeleton, what patterns do we see, what patterns do we not see, what genes are involved, and then I use what's called the comparative method, which is I 
look at not just one organism, like say a mouse or a zebrafish, but I look at as many organisms as I can get my hand on and I compare them and say, what's different? What's the same? How much of your job is done through say, skeletal examination versus genetic examination? Well, those are those are hand-in-hand in, hand in many ways because genetic and skeletal are two sides of the same coin. Behind what we call the phenotype, which is the final product, the morphology of an organism and its function, something like the skeleton, is a genotype, which is the sets of genes that code for that phenotype. So you're really doing an analysis on both. When you're, when you're looking at a gene... And asking, well, what gene is involved? When is it turning on? To what degree? How is it being modulated during the development of an organism? One of those questions you're asking is, what structures are it, is it making? So really, I'm doing both. I'm analyzing skeletons and asking what genes are behind those skeletons. And it's hard for me to parse those out because they both go into any analysis I do. Well, the reason we have you on tonight is because I heard you at the lecture that was put on over at the university by the Student Coalition for Inquiry. Mm-hmm. And part of your talk, we were discussing, or you were discussing, I was listening. <laughs> it's kind of a one-way it's a one-way, one-way discussion. <laughs> right. <laughs> you were discussing the development of creatures, and part of that conversation got me thinking about uh, the work of Jack Horner mm-hmm. um, and his new book about the idea of recreating dinosaurs from modern-day birds using right. different techniques. How to make a dinosaur. How to make a dinosaur. And you seem, you seem to have a lot of opinions about that that you didn't actually go into during your talk, and I thought maybe mm-hmm. we could kind of discuss that. And monsters because that's um what the show's about and i make monsters and i'm interested in them so that sounds fine to me cool so making monsters you specifically as we were leaving the uh the talk you gave me a brief history about the word monster and how it pertains to science right well first off if you actually look at the the latin root of the word monster it actually there's a latin verb monster uh, i think it's monstraire which actually means to show or to point out or to reveal something along those lines. And it's actually the root for the word demonstrate, which has monster embedded in it. And in fact, you can't spell demonstrate without the demon attached to the beginning of the word. And a demon's a type of monster, is it not? And so really what monsters are, and one of the you know, first uses of the word were, was in medicine and pathology to uh, use the term for an organism that was born in an unexpected way, that was in some way abnormal, uh, grotesque, or uh, born differently. And, of course, there's the, you know, we, we think about monsters as being, you know, you think of Frankenstein's monster, something hideous or abnormal that's not going to fit in. But you can think about what you learn from it, the demonstrating part, which is what you can gain as far as knowledge about how development works. Uh, We learn in science often by seeing how things go wrong. We don't build, at least not yet, we don't build uh, atom builders, we build atom smashers. We slam stuff together and look through the pieces. And so that's much of what we do in development is we look at what happens when development goes wrong and ask, well, what went wrong and why? And so a a monster, the classic use of it in pathology was an organism that in some way demonstrated something about how development or embryology proceeds by showing you how it can go wrong. 
Well, I'm a linguist. I had no idea about the etymology of the word monster. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of a cool thing. I actually learned that from uh, Scott Gilbert, who's a, he's sort of the poet laureate of developmental biology. He writes the classic textbook that's used in undergrad classes around uh, the, the country. Uh, and he, he's a bit of a, a historian of the field beyond just being a great biologist. I always thought that was cool. You were talking about how what differentiates a monster from a, a supposed normal phenotype, but of course you have normal variation. So you've got a wide variety of, of variation within a standard type. So where does one draw the line between a monstrously large person and a tall person or a, a dwarf uh, um, or something else? So where, where would you draw that distinction? You know, one man's monster is one environment's innovative phenotype in that uh, there's this concept of uh, a hopeful monster, if you will, that was coined by an embryologist, uh, Richard uh, Goldschmidt, many years ago in the last century, that that's what variations in phenotype are, that when new, say, mutants or variants appear in populations, they may be hopeful monsters in the sense that the sports or variants in their phenotype, their function, their behavior, whatnot, may actually in some way make them um, well-suited to a changing environment. So really, when we're looking at monsters in a lab environment, we may be looking at the extremes of natural variation, but we may also be looking at things that go beyond those extremes that actually become what we say uh, call deleterious. They, they, they go beyond being potential fitness advantages in, a say, say some other environment, to being actually um, clearly harmful. Obviously, if, a, if a, an organ or a part is completely missing in an organism, that could you know, be very detrimental to its well-being. If it's not developing normally, then those sorts of monsters are in the extreme, and they're the type you would think of as being not viable. Mm-hmm. So, so that would that would be different in kind than a monster simply being an organism that hasn't adapted to its environment. Right. So you could take it in, you know, it's in degree. You know, is, are we talking a 1% monster? Or are we talking a, a 50% monster, I suppose, in a sense? You know, a monster may simply be a, a bit of a sport or a variant, a larger size, a slightly different color pattern, a novel behavior that appears. I mean, if you want to interpret that way, a new, a new behavior appears within a population. You could talk about that in terms of being a, a you know, a monster variant. It is abnormal compared to the what you'd call the you know standard population mean behavior before there's something of a value judgment we throw on the word uh, as humans of, of, of looking at it in terms of it being grotesque or inviable but I like to think of the word monster also from the positive the hopeful monster side that those are the natural variants in nature you know and, and you have to remember that it's environmental um, it's 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 in the context of the environment. Organisms are simply adapted to the environment they are currently in. The environment changes. What was a great phenotype in one environment could suddenly be a poor phenotype, and suddenly the abnormal the variants are now better suited. So the, you know, the, the ostracized, if you will, the, the monsters could suddenly be uh, the, the new successful phenotype. And so what about in popular culture? How do you think that's different to the way that the public views the idea of a monster? 
ah, well, we could probably have an entire series of discussions on how fringes of uh, groups are ostracized simply for being different and how, by the very definition, the core of a population follows a set of core behaviors. And so I think monsters are often viewed as simply being the radical fringe in appearance or behavior or in thought that can make um, free thinkers and other people with big ideas monsters of ideas as well. Uh, So in that regard, monsters may be anything that make you uncomfortable, anything that upsets the apple cart or changes paradigms potentially. But I like that idea of a monster then. But that's just me. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you create monsters. Now, how, how do you do that? The, 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 my biggest set of questions is, um, how does a vertebrate build its skeleton? And, you know, vertebrates, of course, are the backboned animals. This includes all of the fishes and then all of us animals that have come up onto land, which are basically fishes as well. We're just very modified terrestrial fishes with all of our special adaptations for being on land. And when I look at the developmental program for all of these animals, I see an awful lot of conservatism. Uh, Most of the same genes that are involved in making the skeleton of a fish, even a primitive fish, like a living primitive fish, like a shark, for example, uses pretty much the same sets of genes. And those genes are in the same place and turn on in very similar ways and at similar times to the genes that turn on to make my own skeleton. Uh, as a human, or for we don't actually do research on humans, so we use mice as our proxy, as our kind of approximate human being a mammal. And I see this remarkable conservatism in the skeletal pattern between these organisms. And because there's these this commonality of plan, one way I have to uh, to uh, sort of understand how that structure is built is to try to perturb it, to push it off of its normal program, if you will. Um, And to do that, we have to block the function of a gene. We have to turn it off. We have to gum it up. We have to use a chemical, perhaps, that uh, uh, blocks its signal and see what it actually does to the phenotype of the organism. And from that, we can backtrack and infer something about the function of the gene, now, ideally, we have a set of checks and balances. We use more than one technique and hopefully be getting some results that match up to uh, allow us to infer something about gene function. And so uh, in my own work, we'll use different techniques that will um, inhibit or block the function of a gene, or we may go the other route. We may actually sort of uh, turn the volume up on a gene and actually over-amplify a gene, make a gene come on earlier than it normally would in development or stay on later or, um, as I'm fond of saying, turn, turn the volume up to 11 instead of what it should be and see what those results are as well. Uh, and the results are sometimes the production of a novel phenotype or a monster. Uh, you know, you get a shark or a fish that has structures that are bigger than they should be or they're in slightly the wrong places or sometimes radically wrong places and you get some rather monstrous looking phenotypes. When you do that, is there an ethical issue involved in intentionally creating monsters? I mean, if you're if one of the products of what you're doing is is having a a living sentient being that is in some ways intentionally deformed, uh, certainly for its environment, is there an ethical issue with that, or how do you how do you address that? 
There, there is definitely an ethical issue. And I think the first thing that, that you'll find is that no one tends to take this type of research um, with more of a solemn and serious attitude than the researchers that are involved themselves. Uh, I can, I'll speak for myself, but I know from many of my other close colleagues, we're some of the biggest fans of the organisms we work on. We are very close to these organisms. And in many ways, we recognize that these organisms are paying an ultimate price to provide us with knowledge. I'm always reminding myself and my students, these organisms are, are giving up their uh, existence so that we can learn something. Don't be wasteful of that opportunity. And that we also need to do whatever we can. Obviously, we, and we can talk about this, some of the um, uh, infrastructure that's put in place to ensure that things are done uh, ethically and humanely. Uh, but that we're always looking for ways to minimize anything that we might consider to be suffering in organisms. And then something else that the general public may not be aware of, we're not taking organisms to full term. Uh, for example, the fish that I work on, uh, the formation of their little skeletons, I'm not raising these fish with, say, extra structures or head parts that are missing or such up to adult fish that are swimming around sadly in a tank like, you know, something out of alien resurrection or something to that effect. Uh, they are as larva or embryos. As soon as they provide a phenotype that allows us to register what the function of the gene is, they're being put down humanely, um, sampled, as we call it. Uh, because the idea for me, frankly, of having an organism sitting around suffering unduly once the data is available, is simply unacceptable. It is unethical. And that is generally the the view you will find among researchers in the field that are working intimately with these animals. Or is there a governing body that guides that? There are various governing bodies at different levels. And frankly, there has to be some better unification at an international level to uh, try to unite these threads of governing bodies. Now, one thing to be said is that there's sort of two different paths of, of governing bodies, if you will, or, or there's two, two different sort of paths of ethical concerns that are pushing forward what's allowable in um, sort of path-breaking biological work in cells and development and such. One is, and this is what's sort of pushing forward the ethical questions, of course, is stem cell research and especially the use of human stem cell research. And so at a sort of a international level, you have things like the United Nations, the World Health Organization. Um, there's a, a council in Europe. Uh, it's a convention on human rights and biomedicine. And they've all uh, it, at least made statements about uh, what should be limitations on human stem cell research. They don't necessarily agree with each other in having a plan as to how to enact those at a more sort of a Actually, hands-on level, though, uh, and particularly in this country, there are different rules in different countries. Some are not as well-pleased as others. But in this country, uh, there are actual uh, sets of regulations and governing bodies, government governing bodies, to ensure that uh, animal welfare and research is being considered. Uh, the main one is uh, the uh, uh, National Institute of, of Health, which is a government agency, uh, has an office of laboratory animal welfare called OLAW. And OLAW uh, 
overseas. Of course, you know, this is, we're, if you're going to ask about government overseeing bodies, that means I'm going to give you a bunch of acronyms because, you know, they love their TLAs, their three letter acronyms, uh, or greater. Um, <laughs> and, uh, OLAW oversees something called IACUC. And IACUC is the, uh, is a institutional animal care and use committee. And basically the way it works is this. If you are at an institute that is doing research on organisms, you have to have an IACUC organization, a protocol, and this is going to involve a committee. There's going to be external oversight for this committee. There's going to have to be written protocols for how you're going to use your animals. People are going to come in and check and make sure you're using them properly. And then part of the safety check also is that, um, you know, to do research on animals, you've got to have money and money comes from grants. And to get a grant, you've got to have IACUC numbers. Basically, you have to have approval. So there's sort of this circular, you've got to demonstrate that you're going to use the animals humanely before anyone will give you research to even use the animals. Um, and that tends to be the sort of uh, uh, primary mechanism for making sure that someone's not out there doing the sort of South Park, making five um, hind-ended monkeys. <laughs> so in uh, which countries would the regulations be a bit more lenient and have there ever been any problems that have ensued? Well, it, it seems like in emerging um, industrialized countries, I think the area that is still a bit of a question mark is going to particularly be in places such as uh, uh, China and some of the other surrounding uh, Asian countries that are just bringing up sort of pathbreaking research. Japan has been on board for longer and you can sort of treat them in the same vein of having sort of um, an organized system like Europe and North America has. You know, I think there's sort of some question marks about exactly what are the ethical standards for animal research and actually what may be going on. You know, I'm not proposing any conspiracies about, you know, about, you know, them building Godzillas or anything over there. But uh, I don't know what kind of infrastructure they have for uh, for animal welfare in some of these countries or if they do yet. And that's a big question that, that needs to be addressed. And, of course, there have been some, you know, high-profile issues coming out of um, some of those countries. Uh, the ones you hear about most, again, come back to things like um, stem cell research, um, one of the big ones. And, of course, this was really just a – frankly, it was not about um, uh, an ethical issue regarding the, the, the actual use of biological material, but – there was a researcher, Huang Wusuk, who uh, back about, I guess, about five years ago now uh, claimed to have uh, actually created human embryonic stem cells using therapeutic stem cell technology and uh, got a bunch of this stuff published. And then it turns out a bunch of his research was fabricated and he ended up uh, admitting to the fraud and being expelled from his university and such, although apparently he was rehired somewhere elsewhere right after that, suggesting that there may not be some of the safety checks in some of these other countries that there are here. It's kind of hard to pull one over on the research community and the um, organizations for funding and for uh, supporting uh, animal welfare, at least speaking for what goes on here in the U.S. I mean, I can, I can speak for myself at an 
a university that's just now starting to emerge with a serious research program, um, we frankly can't write big grants to do animal research unless we have all of our ducks in the row as far as all of these animal care regulations. We have to have all those numbers, all those people on board before they're going to before anyone's going to give us money to do the real research. That that raises an interesting question. I mean, how does that mean anybody who wants to do replication of these experiments have to go through the same regulatory bodies? Yep, that's really the case. Wow. You know, now if you have Bill Gates to do something underground, if Bill Gates is listening, no offense, but <laughs> if someone that roll you, you do the Jurassic Parkway, you get some crazy, uh, you know, rich guy to bankroll everything and you want to do it off the grid, I, I suppose there's nothing to prevent something like that from happening. Although if you're going to do research off the grid, you've unplugged yourself from the power of doing science, which is the fact that science moves forward because we have the power of numbers. We interact as a community and that's what moves us forward which I've always said is the biggest argument against there being secret science being done, because when you unplug from the community, it's hard to move forward in isolation. Uh, so I imagine there's not much, you know, I imagine that you could do some secret work in underground, you know, in hidden down deep in a mountain somewhere if you really wanted to start trying to clone monkeys. Well, you know, you know what that that reminds me of is the whole clone, clone aid thing with the Raelians. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 exactly the sort of same thing where they they you know they uh, Claude Vohorn, the the head of Raelians, uh, who were big, yes. uh, big cults, and yeah, and he's like, oh yeah, we clone people. <laughs> it's like this again. It was sort of a self contained sort of James Bond villain type of scenario. It's funny you should mention uh, Rail because uh, I knew of that guy when I was a kid because I'm actually. Uh, a motorsports fan. He used to race sports cars. So I knew the crazy guy that had some cult as this guy that used to drive a Lotus back in the eighties. And it's funny. I'm still talking about him in this totally other context of my life. now. <laughs> um, but you know, it's like I tell my students too. Um, uh, you know, I use this sports analogy um, in sports. It's, it's not really smack talk if you can back it up on the court and in, in, in science, it's the, the, the comparable thing is data. Uh, you know, if you're going to make an assertion, you better bring the data. So it's not smack talk if you can back it up with data, but uh, they're just talking smack. You want to, you know, make an assertion, you're over there cloning human aliens. Fine, bring me the data. We'll, I'll look at it. Well, the thing that surprises me is, is just how, how long it goes without people bringing forth the data. I mean, you talked about, uh, I think his name was Sook, um, the, the Korean physicist, or, or for example, you look at, um, you look at Pons and Fleischmann with the cold fusion stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they, they kept that up for years, <laughs> as I recall. And finally, uh, finally, obviously it all imploded, but for, it's, it's remarkable how long some of these things take to finally be exposed. You also get the uh, component of other people trying to replicate results and getting negative results and being a little fearful of jumping right in there and saying, well, I didn't get their results, so they must be wrong. You know, if you're going to, you know, someone like the cold fusion guys, if you're going to go take them to task and say, uh, you guys made this up, that's an extraordinary claim. So you better be pretty confident in your extraordinary evidence, which frankly is negative evidence. We couldn't ever get it to work. So there can be the slow going of, well, it's going to take 
we're going to have to kind of sit here and wait until a whole bunch of labs also continue to get nothing before we actually call them on this. Mm-hmm. And of course, not, not to interrupt, but just yeah. that reminds me of uh, of Wakefield. You know, Andrew Wakefield, the anti-vaccine doctor. He was finally kicked out of uh, medical practice. But another another example. It can be slow going. It, it can it it, it it can be slow going to refute a big claim, even when it's kind of clear that the data is not really there. It, it takes the community action. And because we're skeptics and we're, we're cautious, we don't like to jump the gun. And so I guess, you know, it's funny, but it does always take some time. And then the damage is already being done? Yeah, the damage is done, especially because um, the general public remembers the hot button issue and they don't hear about it when it gets refuted later. Um, I'll use an example from my um, something that's... Uh, that I lecture on a, a, quite a bit because it's close to my own research, uh, the, the origin of birds. Um, birds are dinosaurs. You don't turn a bird into a dinosaur. A bird is a dinosaur. If you Just in the same sense that you and I are mammals, we evolved out of mammals. Once you're in the club, you're never allowed out. Birds evolved from dinosaurs. That makes them dinosaurs. And our fossil evidence for this is gorgeous and Wonderful. I wish Darwin was around to show it to him. He'd love it. Uh, but I'm struck by how many people come up to me and say, well, I thought that was all refuted because they found that forgery. And the fact is, among the, I won't say dozens at this point, hundreds of different specimens of feathered dinosaurs, uh, among dozens and dozens of different species now found over the last uh, 15 years, um, there was a single incident of a specimen that had been uh, glued together from two separate specimens by a farmer and sold to some kind of not very well experienced scientists that misinterpreted it. They kind of got duped by a, a farmer that made a really nice specimen out of some junk. Uh, and I'm struck by how many people just took that one incident. They heard, oh, this is all a forgery in the same sense that you hear people talk about Piltdown Man still and say, well, you know, I thought evolution was invalidated because there was that Piltdown Man thing. I'm like, really? You're still hanging? That's so 1890 of you. <laughs> but, but those things really stick in people's mind. You know, a single incident of something like a, a stem cell researcher being fraudulent is enough for people to sort of cast the doubt on the, the majority of a community at times. And just something in human nature. Well, they, they've certainly done a number on the human cloning. It seems like all the examples we've had so far uh, that have been in the media have been fake, right? Yeah. Yeah. There, and there's, you know, the, what the person that's not in science hears is the stuff that comes through the media. And the media, of course, is focused on the sensational stories. And sensational stories are often um, stories of tragedy or intrigue or accident. And so there's going to be preferential treatment towards. Um, things that are sensational, especially something that's fraudulent, you know, in the same vein that, uh, you know, people here, people are afraid to fly because they say it's dangerous to fly because planes are always crashing, but that's because planes actually rarely crash. And so when you, when they crash, it's big news. 
but cars crash all the time in every city, every day, and you never hear about it because it's such a common story. No one reports it. And so people forget that it's more dangerous to drive to the supermarket than it is to fly somewhere. And so in the same sense, if you're not hearing all the stories about work being done in an area such as stem cell research, because most of it's kind of boring and just detail-oriented progress being made, and occasionally you hear some sensational story, you maybe take that as representative of what's actually happening instead of being the outlier, which is what it really is. With the um, ethical limits and the governance limits, what do you think are the uh, the literal limits of what we're going to be able to do with embryological and genetic manipulation? Well, I'm going to avoid that question in a sense because uh, I was at one point a physics major as an undergrad, and there is a long history in physics of famous physicists. I'm not claiming to be famous here, but a famous physicist getting up at conferences and saying, in 10 years, we will have described and discovered everything there is to discover in physics, and those people always being completely and totally wrong. I'm not even going to um, hazard a guess as to where the limits in our ability to understand organisms and to design, to manipulate, to, I don't know if I want to use the word control, but to uh, modify development to understand it uh, lie. I don't know where those limits lie. Uh, I will say that I believe we've just begun to scratch the surface in understanding how genes actually interact with each other. Um, it's still very early days. Uh, this is one of the issues I do have with um, some of the stuff that you hear out there, such as, for example, as we mentioned, Jack Horner's book on how to build a dinosaur. Um, we don't understand much of the subtlety about how genes interact in time and space and concentration to actually build organisms. We do understand at a very rough approximate level. Uh, we have this sort of basic tune in our head, if you will, but we are not ready to, man for, to manifest it into concertos at, at any level yet. Uh, and nor do we have the tools for putting all those genes together and getting them to interact the way we'd like to. We can play with a few genes at a time, but building whole chromosomes, stacking chromosomes together, sticking large numbers of genes from one organism into another and getting a functional organism are things that are way down the road. Knowing how those, all those genes interact, uh, you know, a lot of our paradigms are turning over very quickly right now. Uh, you've heard about junk DNA, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. And textbooks still are full of talking about, well, there's a lot of DNA that's junk and isn't being used. That's radically, very quickly being erased. We're finding that, yes, there are some, there's some debris and junk in our genomes. There's some stuff in there that is uh, artifacts, sunken ships of genomes past, if you will, but much of that architecture, things that do not code for proteins, in other words, they're not genes themselves, are still absolutely crucial for genes turning on at the right time, at the right concentration, for being modulated properly. A lot of that stuff that you might think of as junk DNA is actually spacer DNA and organizer DNA and plays some sort of blue-collar roles, if you will, in ensuring that all of those genes actually get expressed properly. And we're just really starting to get a sense of how um, sort of elegant and complicated that system is. 
Uh, so, you know, there, it's going to be exciting times. There's much more for us to explore, but I wouldn't say we're anywhere close to saying what we'll be able to do. Maybe build an organism from scratch at some point. Maybe build a dinosaur from scratch in silico on a computer and ultimately have an organism that's live like any other. Yeah, why not? That's down the road somewhere. But are we anywhere close to that? No, not not in the slightest. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. You know, I think one of the things that that happens is that I think the general public um, gets uh, very impatient with with a lot of things because they they hear all these stories in the news that are new things and embryonic star research and all these sorts of things. And and what people sometimes forget, I think, is that this is a very new science. This is you know this is not something that people have had two hundred years to work out. I mean, these are you guys are working on things that uh, in a field that has only been around for. You know, in some cases, a few years. Uh, I so I, it's, it's it's remarkable to me that people sort of have they have such a, a a small focus on 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 what you guys are doing. That's true, and in fact, in, in some ways, all science is new science. Once it becomes old, it becomes part of commonplace technology. We integrate it into the rest of civilization. It's no longer sort of the 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 leading edge, breaking path. So. Uh, you know, the stuff you hear about is always work in progress and is brand new stuff. You know, as answers start to emerge, we publish so that everyone can start discourse on this. And that sometimes gets into the mainstream media when it's interesting or sexy enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we have it all worked out. We have a new piece worked out uh, that maybe, you know, some sometimes it allows us to answer questions. Sometimes all it does is generate 10 new uh, questions or, you know, make us realize, well, we really didn't know that little bit, but now we know a little bit more about what kind of questions we should ask. Mm-hmm. And yes, I, I agree. Um, it can make people impatient. Um, I, I, you hear a lot of people that will say, well, you know, what are all these scientists doing? You know, you guys are getting money. And so why aren't you solving all the problems? It's like, well, we're trying. That's about best we can do that's about the best science has always done there's too many questions out there to solve them all overnight 
uh, you know, we're, we make progress at the rate that we can make progress. The work you do with, with embryos, how do you do a knockout gene, for example? How do you, how does that actually happen? What do you, what do you actually have to do? Is it hard? Yes, it can be, but there are, there's, there's various ways that you can actually go about. Um, now you mentioned a knockout gene, but let me backtrack from that just a little bit because really what the goal of, and I'll, I'll address knockout genes, but what the goal here is to do is to in some way affect normal development and see what happens. In other words, at, in the, the sense, in the spirit of the word, as I defined it earlier, uh, to demonstrate, to build a little bit of a monster here by seeing what happens when you tweak a gene in one way or the other. And again, you can do that different ways. You could actually remove a gene from the genome, try to just knock it out, get it out of there so it can't actually turn on at all. You could instead find some way to molecularly gum up the works for the gene so that it actually is in there, but it can't be expressed. And sometimes there are very simple ways to do that. If there are, there may be actual chemicals that you can expose the cells of the embryo to that will actually inhibit that gene and prevent it from forming. Or you may not even have to inhibit the gene. You may actually just inhibit the protein that that gene, every gene makes a protein. That's what a gene does. And that protein builds something or does something in the organism. So if you have a chemical that in some way breaks down or stops or binds up the protein, you get the same result as if the gene had never been turned on before. So sometimes you can go about it in simple ways. If you do happen to have a compound, it could be something as simple as a plant toxin. You know, we know that there are chemicals such as even alcohols that can affect development. You hear about fetal alcohol syndrome, for example, has effect on the phenotype of, of babies that are born. It's affected development because that alcohol that might have been in the mother's bloodstream and ended up in the child's bloodstream ended up affecting gene expression. And so we know that some chemicals, things like plant toxins, caffeine is a plant toxin, for example, uh, can affect development. And so sometimes you can simply sort of knock out, in a sense, the effect of a gene by literally soaking an embryo in uh, a particular compound. That's one of the easy ways to do it. Um, if that's not going to work for you or you need something more precise or you don't have a compound that's known that's going to affect the gene that you're after, then you may have to actually go in and sort of precisely excise sort of with a molecular scalpel, if you will, cut that gene out of the organism. And that can get pretty tough to do. In fact, it's so tough that we only have a couple of organisms that we use in research that we can, uh, that we've developed enough as a research tool that we can actually go in and cut genes out. And that's what a knockout gene, the actual knockout technology is about, is to build what's called a transgenic organism where we have in some way added, removed a gene and to do that, you have to use a little bit of genetic trickery. You may get some bacteria involved to help make copies of the gene. Usually it involves ultimately getting some modified copy of a gene into a stem cell from that organism. Let's say a mouse, because mice are used very commonly as knockout organisms. And then that stem cell will be inserted into a developing mouse embryo. Basically, we're using cloning technology, but we're adding a a few cells to this embryo that have had this extra gene or a cutout gene, a knocked out gene um, uh, uh, in it. And what will happen then is this embryo that has a few cells that have had 
the genes they knocked out. Well, if you do that with enough embryos, some of those embryos, what will end up happening is that the stem cells that have the modified gene or the, la- the gene lacking, those stem cells will end up in the germ line. In other words, they'll end up making the sperm or the egg of that little developing mouse embryo. So when it grows up, that it will have either sperm or egg that actually lack that gene. So then in the next generation, if you breed some of those with each other, you can end up forming a generation of mice that completely lack that gene altogether. And at that point, you have a knockout mouse. So it is a bit of a pain in the butt. you got to do some genetic mo- uh, manipulation, some stem cell technology, and then you got to become a mouse breeder for a few generations until you end up with uh, a mouse breed, a line that breeds true for this la- gene that's lacking. And then you can start doing the study of, well, what's the phenotype of this mouse? Speaking of, speaking of mice, are, we're hearing something in the background. Is, is, is there, do you have mice or typing or something in the background? Yeah, it's gerbils running around. I just turned them off. You, <laughs> you turned off your gerbils? Yes. <laughs> what are you doing with gerbils? They've been removed. <laughs> There's okay. always monsters running around somewhere. <laughs> well, let, me, let, me, let me pick up on that. I, at one point I saw, uh, and I, I think everyone has probably seen it at some point, I saw a photograph of a mouse with a human ear on it. Mm-hmm. And it, it looked it looked real, but then on the other hand, it looked photoshopped. No, it's not, it's not photoshopped, nor is it a mouse that has a genome for a human ear. It did not develop that way. What you saw in that, and I know that's something that has stuck in people's mind, and they think that you can get a mouse that grows from an embryo with a human ear growing out of its back, and that's not the case at all. That was a basically a mouse that was acting as a surrogate or a template for growing a big piece of cartilage for a sort of a, uh, a not a, I don't want to use the word fake, but a, uh, a, a, a prosthetic ear. And so the, the cartilage for that ear was actually grown on a template, basically a, 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 a mold that was shaped like a human ear that I either was embedded in the mouse originally or the cartilage was grown on that and then embedded in the mouse and the mouse, the mouse's skin on its back was simply incubating it. So the mouse was acting as a host for basically a parasitic, uh, prosthetic cartilage fake ear, if you will. So um, while, yes, very interesting in its own right, there's, there was nothing in that mouse's genome that was um, driving development of a human ear. Uh, we're nowhere near that. In fact, I, I, if you ask me, so what are the genes that make a human ear – I might come up with a list of some genes that are involved, but I wouldn't be able to give you the list and say, these are the exclusive list of genes. And if you turn these on in a group of cells, you'll make an ear. We're nowhere near to that level of sophistication yet in saying these are the ear genes to the exclusion of everything else. Well, let me ask you this. If I wanted to have my own mouse with an ear on it, where would I get one? Um, Check Walmart first. That's usually the the best bet. Okay. Super Walmarts. What else is that process, that same process used for? Or uh, The mouse ear thing? Yes. Uh, this, this idea of using of, of, a, of a, using a sort of a, a template or a framework to, to entice sale, cells to uh, grow into particular structures is being explored 
with the idea of perhaps being able to um, actually grow um, organs in vitro. And I know there's been some progress in trying to um, sort of build prototypes of some simple types of, um, of, of tissues, such as bladders, for example, which is a I think been picked because it's a rather relatively simple organ in some ways. It's kind of just a sack to hold uh, urine um, and to induce sets of cells to sort of grow into a particular shape. Although in some ways it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a cop out. What we've got to learn how to do is, is, is figure out how to send cells, the molecular signals to actually form up into a shape like that instead of, um, you know, providing them a, a piece of plastic to grow in, grow on. But it's it's a first step. A lot of this is about exploring what kind of signals are required to get cells to grow into particular shapes. And in fact, if we learn what kind of signals it requires, uh, you know, does giving them some, does gravity in any way affect a cell? Does contact with another cell affect it? Does the amount of liquid around it or electricity or anything else affect a cell might help us to, sort of track down what genes are actually evolved, uh, involved ultimately in telling a set of cells, hey, you guys that are there in a sheet, you need to fold up and form a kidney or a bladder or an ear or any other structure. We had Steve Jones on uh, a while back, and, and he was talking about how that, I guess a few in the eighties, it seemed like we were on the verge of really breaking in and learning a lot of stuff. And instead we basically learned that we really were very ignorant when it comes to genetics. Um, and I feel like, you know, a lot of the dreams that were, you know, really popular in 1970s science fiction were things like, um, using, um, retroviruses to genetically alter living people. And, you know, and now it seems like maybe that's, not very bloody likely. I don't know. <laughs> what well, do you thought? <laughs> well, isn't isn't that the case with all of science? I mean, I I I haven't seen the flying cars that were promised yet either. Although, <laughs> considering people's inability to drive in two dimensions, I'm not sure about adding a third to that being an idea anyway. But we I, finally got jetpacks. I'm excited about that. <laughs> you you personally do? Well, I don't have the money right now, but the, I guess some guys in New Zealand have got one that I think they said it was $75,000 and you have to take a training course. But uh, if, you good for the jet, if you can give me a jet pack, I'll get you a mouse with an ear. Hey, now we're talking. <laughs> that's a fair swap. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I think that's always the case in science is that, you know, we, we have we have a view of where we are and we extrapolate with the dashed lines of where we think we'll be. That's why I was so unwilling to answer your question of exactly where we're going to end up with all of this, you know, genetic manipulation. Uh, and so we say, well, you know, we'll be able to do this. And then we probe a little further with our technology and our understanding. We realize, oh, well, you know, actually this system has a different, there's another tier to interaction here. I think we keep getting, we keep underestimating, um, the levels of sort of subtlety of interaction of components in this universe, in a, in a sense, we've done this in physics as well. You know, we keep thinking we've reached the end of of of, 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 of atomic and subatomic particles and how they interact with each other, and then now we're on this quest for dark matter and dark energy and and for you know st structure that may not even register the way we've been recording it up to this point. Uh, and in some ways I think that's just happening as we probe into the genome further. We're realizing that 
there's these secondary and tertiary levels of interaction that we hadn't even imagined to be there. And we're having to say, well, no, hold on a second. We didn't even think about this. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Um, one thing that we started to realize as we started to actually do these genome projects and count up how many genes are in organisms is there's not enough bloody genes to actually make some of these organisms if we had gone with what had been the assumption to, to that point that one gene makes one protein and that's it. So you have a gene for making a thing and if an organism has, say, a million different things that are required, a million different little special Lego bricks, if you will, required to make it functional, then there has to be a million genes behind that. What we were finding was less genes than there ended up being types of, say, proteins in organisms by our best estimates. And that was a bit of a shock, obviously. What that suggested then was there was some other level of data processing or data compression beyond just the gene. In other words, a single gene must then be able to code for more than one protein in a sense. And that's actually what we found. We find is that even once a, um, a gene is transcribed, in other words, it's read off to uh, a piece of RNA that is then going to go outside of the nucleus of the cell and end up being turned into a, gene, uh, into a protein, that it can still be modified after it's been read off the gene. In fact, it can be what's called post-transcriptionally uh, modified in many different ways. So in other words, we find genes now that can be read a whole bunch of different ways. There's a gene in uh, fruit flies that we found, for example, that has all of these what are called uh, alternate splice sites to it. So this single gene can actually be cut at various points. So imagine it as a single word, if you will, that could have sort of prefixes and suffixes or whatever cut off of it and end up making different words. But this is a single gene that actually can make tens of thousands of different potential variant proteins, depending on how it's spliced alternatively. So we've just come to realize that a single gene may actually be capable of making thousands of different slight variant proteins, depending on how they're being regulated after the gene is transcribed. And what that means is that what's happening after a gene is being read involves all this other subtle regulation. And we're just now realizing just how prevalent that is to making organisms. So there's, again, all these other levels we have to address. Wow. I'm happy with, I'm happy with this fact. It, it means not only job security for me personally, <laughs> uh, but it means uh, when I get up in front of a class and I tell students this, I can say there's much work to be done for those of you that find this interesting. We need more uh, people getting involved. There's, a, there's, a, there's much more to do. That's good. I think so. So how do scientists feel about the amount of um, public policy that governs what they can do in the lab? That's a good question. And, I, I, again, you, you might imagine the, the view that might get portrayed in movies or um, uh, you know, mad scientists in, in a, you know, like Futurama or something that scientists are always trying to find some way to get around the, you know, those 
damn stuffed shirt officials that are stifling their research. But it's often the scientists that are leading the charge uh, in trying to inform policymakers and their constituents. Um, first, of course, on the benefits of doing research and things such as stem cells. Obviously, we want to be advocates for why the work we do um, is important. And what that means is that good scientists need to not just look at it in terms of, well, my research is important because it's interesting, but to justify it and to say, well, here's why it's important. Here's why it's important for human health, uh, for conservation efforts, for whatever reasons your science may be important. You need to justify it and plug it into um, everyone else's everyday life. But I think you also find that scientists are often involved in trying to lead the charge in the debates for, say, for example, ethical standards, for actually pushing for ethical standards and for building up those mechanisms for, say, oversight uh, uh, of research and things such as uh, animal welfare. Uh, I'm involved in my university's building of our animal uh, care infrastructure. Um, I should be. I'm one of the people intimately uh, associated with the use of animals, and I want to be involved in making sure that we do it right. And at least speaking from my own perspective, uh, I look around at my fellow colleagues everywhere, and uh, we're usually, you know, for the most part, I mean, some people just aren't interested. They don't want to be involved in policy and, and um, you know, all the politicking and the board, writing boring documents and such. Um, but we are the ones that kind of know how things work too. And, uh, we want to be there to actually make sure that it's done right. So I don't look at policy as a, as necessarily a stifling thing. Uh, I look at it in terms of, you know, there need to be, uh, ethical standards. And if we want to ensure that there's rules and regulations and that they don't also limit opportunities to get research done, then I want to have a hand in it so that I can foster research, but at the same time, ensure that, uh, you know, we do it in a, in a fair and ethical way. What do you think about, um, the, the patenting of life forms? I've been reading some stuff lately. In fact, it was, there was also a piece on 60 minutes last week that was talking about the, uh, the, the ways in which genes and other things like that, uh, can be, in, well, the, depending on what, how the court's rule can either, either can or can't be patented, what are your what are your thoughts on that? I don't know personally where I stand on that yet, because um, from one side, I can see the necessity of, especially if you have a, you have a research group of researchers that have put a lot of sweat equity into uh, developing a set of techniques. They've built a special transgenic animal, and they want to make sure that. In some way, they um, they get some say in how research progresses in that area. So I, I struggle with this in my, my own ways uh, all the time in that I want to make sure that I don't get run over and, uh, and that I in some way sort of protect my own interests. But at the same time, the, the whole idea of science is, is that we don't uh, say, here's my hypothesis and then hold it closely to our chest, but that we, it becomes common do- domain. The things we discover uh, are our common domain and that we say, here's my hypothesis, you publish it, and then you step away from it. It's not really yours anymore. Uh, and so uh, from a purist standpoint, I feel that, um, well, you 
you've developed an organism that may be useful scientifically to limit who has access to it is, um, is a worrisome thing. Um, but at the same time I can, I can say, well, but you put a lot of, you know, a lot of people's livelihoods may be involved in this. Um, I, I, I think where, you know, there's, there's various categories of this too, because one thing you're going to find is a lot of, uh, for example, commercial patenting of microorganisms that are going to be involved in things such as uh, bioremediation. As we keep dumping oil spills and other sorts of, um, you know, hazardous things on the planet, you're going to find more um, commercial ventures that actually are going to, these are very going to be very lucrative com- companies that are going to rise up to basically clean up messes. And they're going to, you know, do this probably through the use of bioengineered bacteria that can scrub out toxins or oils and convert them into something happy, like, I don't know, marshmallows or whatever they've decided to engineer. And Mm -hmm. um, those are going to be patented organisms. Um, But I don't, that's going, you know, it's a conundrum. Well, would there be a difference between whether the research is publicly funded, uh, such as through, um, you know, CDC or something else like that, or whether it's, you know, Merck or something else? Yeah, I think that's going to be the big difference is it's going to fall into two categories. If there's if there's a pharmaceutical company behind the funding for a particular microorganism or some sort of commercial venture that's, uh, you know, not actually medically oriented, but say is in bioremediation or restoration ecology or something like that. Um, those, that's where you can see a lot of patenting and you're gonna, you can expect to see that. Um, and, and limited or locked access to those organisms. They're gonna become proprietary. Um, and people are gonna get sued for trying to build an organism that's close to it or stealing or all of these sorts of things. Um, but if it's someone that's doing research, it's funded, say, by the National Institute of Health or the National Science Foundation, which, of course, are government agencies that fund much of the sort of basic science that's done in this country. And let's say we have a group that has designed a special knockout mouse and they attempt to patent it or such. I think you're going to find a much more um, sort of liberal and open um, access to that organism and that the patent may be there to sort of can um, in some way protect some intellectual property rights but not in a way that makes it completely proprietary. Uh, there, there's already some of this in some ways. If you develop, um, say, for example, you produce an antibody um, in an organism and you spend a long time to do that, um, you have some control over who has access to that. Other researchers have to sort of contact you to get a sample of it for use. And it doesn't mean you won't let them have it if they request it, but it does let you sort of have some control over who gets it and when. Interesting. I think uh, in some of the same ways as software uh, and well, more specifically in publishing the way those things have changed, people's, you know, want to heavily control um, software development, for example, um, and patent software, but software is easily replicable. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, for drug manufacturers to do something like create a, a, a bacteria or a virus that can code for a protein that helps suppress cancer or something like that, it's not like a drug in the sense that they used to make drugs because 
this drug reproduces itself because it's made of life and that's what life does, right? So Yes, and and your patent is always changing on you too. Right, it'll evolve, right. Right. It's very you know, tricky. So and, and, and I, I I this would be an interesting thing to bring up. This might make uh, patent lawyers' heads explode. We might have to send patent lawyers. Uh, law school might require you to take an evolutionary biology class at some point. That would be hilarious. I'd I'd happily teach that uh, just for the amusement factor. Um, in that, uh, at what point does your patent evolve outside of the the defined patent uh, uh, that you laid down for it? You know, you've got to, if you patent something, you have to define it and, and describe how it's different than other things. And, uh, if it evolves on you over time, um, at what point is it, uh, has it evolved beyond the patent? And so, uh, people aren't actually infringing on your copyright if they have access to it. Couldn't you simply, you know, steal one of, Merck's little bioremediation bugs and add a couple extra genes in it and say, well, it's evolved. It's not the same one. Uh, I'm sure there, I'm sure these are going to be court cases at some point. Yeah. I, I do want to specify that, you know, we're talking about patents and, and not copyright and specifically because of my, my bringing in publishing. I, I, I specifically mean that uh, in, in the uh, software world, they want to patent these things, which are easily copied that has, right. nothing, to do with, not, has nothing to do with copyright. Right. Correct. It just, it, 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 and also the same sort of evolutionary uh, things can have to do with software as well. It can evolve as well. Uh, right. Patenting software, I think is a bad idea, but that's just my opinion. Uh, and I think maybe within the realms of patenting life forms, and you know, this show is not about politics, but right. uh, the legal ramifications of patenting life or segments of life, I think, uh, are going to be uh, really hard to unravel. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> one way to think about it in a, in a much broader sense, beyond just say organisms and software, is to remember that the history of information is always about the continued decentralization of information. Once it starts to become common access, it's very hard to make it proprietary and locked up against. And organisms are ultimately genomes, they're information content. And once that becomes available, it's very hard to make it unavailable to people again. So, uh, you know, you can go online, you don't even have to have access through a university um, anymore and look at genes and genomes for organisms now and that will just become more and more common so it's going to be i don't know how it's going to be possible to keep people totally hands off of a particular genome just not sure how that's going to work so well you you also i mean you were involved in the tiktolic dig so there's mm -hmm. a paleontology aspect to your job as well as a lab and uh, embryological aspect right so how do you like to split your time? Where do, you, where do you find the most joy in your job? I love doing the field work, but field work is a, is a rare few and far between thing. It's expensive and it's always a gamble because you're, you're saying, well, I'm going to go out and find something someone hasn't found. And I think I can find it in this place. So it's a needle in a haystack venture. And um, those are hard things to find funding for. There's a, a huge amount of variation uh, morphologically between an embryological specimen and a full adult. So don't you lose a lot of that um, knowledge when you have to terminate these embryos early on? To some degree, that is the case. Uh, so as with anything, 
you've got to do things comparatively. And, you know, you can, if you only have a single data point, you can draw any line with any slope you want through that. And so you've got to bracket off of as many data points as you can. So let's say that I learned something about um, how a gene works by only looking at embryos that are only viable up to a certain point. I have to put them out of their misery, if you will, very early before their little bits of cartilage actually will form into the adult skeletons. So what that means is I can't see what the effect of that gene, say, being knocked out would be on the adult form, maybe because there would be no way to make an adult form, even if I didn't have some set of ethical standards or regulations over me. Um, Then what I've got to do is I've got to turn to the other types of data that I could turn to. One is the natural variation that exists in the adults normally for that species. What kind of variation do you see in the skeleton across adults, the natural variation? Then I can broaden that out further still and say, what variation do I see among similar species? Then I can broaden that further out and say, let's say among species and fossil ancestors. And what I can often, what we can do from that is we start to get a metric, sort of a playing field of what skeletons can and can't do, then we can go back and test against those genes. So we can ultimately sort of extrapolate about what those genes are doing by knowing sort of the limitations of what adult skeletons can do over long time series from the fossil record, from living variation among animals today, and then from the perturbations we get from the embryos. So again, it becomes this checks, you know, no one line of evidence by itself is damning, if you will, for answering a set of questions. But when you line up perturbations in embryos, natural existing variation in living populations, and the data set over potentially hundreds of millions of years in fossils, you get an emergent picture. Or at least you hope you do. Okay. Well, Marcus, we've got an obligatory question that we ask all of our guests. Uh, What's your favorite monster? My favorite monster? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to default to my, my favorite vertebrate my um, sort of my mascot vertebrate, if you will. It is my favorite vertebrate. It is also my favorite fish using the proper phylogenetic term, proper um, uh, uh, usage of fish, not the word we'd use on fish on an everyday basis, but what we use is fish when we're building evolutionary trees. It also happens to be my favorite dinosaur, I confuse you enough at this point. I'm intrigued. It is also my favorite organism at my backyard bird feeder. It's the tufted titmouse, Baophilus <laughs> ecolor. It's a little small, gregarious, gray bird with a little bit of a mohawk. Uh, they generally pair bond and will form a bond at least through a single breeding season. They like to swoop down on large mammals and pull fair, uh, fur out of their back to build their nests. angry little adaptable birds extremely intelligent extremely successful they've dealt well on the margins of human encroachment Uh, a perfect example i think of a clever but alien to us at least vertebrate dinosaur uh on many levels and i think just a rather handsome example of an animal it's 
uh, if Carl Sagan had uh, consulted with me back before probes were sent out of the solar system, when we engraved examples of naked humans on the side of our Voyager space probes and instructions of where to go and find those naked humans, if an alien were to come across that ship, I would have also engraved a little tufted titmouse on there just for good measure. I was going to say that's not a prototypical monster. I thought you were going to say Bigfoot. Bigfoot? No. (laughs) (laughs) Show me the data. Skeptic. (laughs) And us. I like it. I like it. (laughs) Excellent. Well put together. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Talk. You were listening to an interview with Dr. Marcus Davis of Kennesaw State University. You can find out more about the various projects of our hosts, myself, Blake Smith, Ben Radford, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, by visiting monstertalk.org or skeptic.com. Monster Talk is produced with the assistance of Skeptic Magazine. Get Skeptic Magazine and get the benefit of the doubt. Want to help out Monster Talk but don't have thousands of dollars in cash to give? Why not give us a review on iTunes? It's fast, it's free, it's easy, and if your review is positive, it really helps us reach new listeners. Want to meet other Monster Talk listeners? Come try the Skeptic Message Boards at Skeptic.com. Thanks again for listening. Monster Talk's theme music was by Pete Stealing Monkeys, used by permission. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.